Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today we're going to be talking to Norm Finkelstein. Yep, he has a new book out. Excited to talk to him about that and all things left, identity politics, cancel culture. Should be a spicy one. Gotcha. So uh, before we get into that, though, there's a couple things we wanted to touch on. So um, there was just, I mean, this is some pretty big news if you think about it, because for the longest time, this was like the ultimate taboo in political circles, like elite political circles. Mm -hmm. uh, so now we have a whole bunch of Congress people signed a letter calling for the release of Julian Assange. So I believe it was uh, Rashida Tlaib who led the charge on this. Yep. She tweeted, four years ago today, Julian Assange was arrested for publishing the truth. I'm leading, a, I'm leading a letter to Attorney General Garland, urging him to uphold the freedom of the press by dropping these Trump-era charges and withdrawing the extradition request. And um, I'm taking a look here. So we have Rashida Tlaib, Corey Bush, uh, Greg Cesar, Jamal Bowman, and AOC. They signed it. If I'm not mistaken, I think maybe more of a hopped on after the fact. I'm not 100% sure on that, but we have at least some people in Congress actually doing the right thing on this front and leading the charge. Just to read you a little bit of the letter. Um, so it's to the Honorable uh, Merrick Garland, dear Attorney General Merrick Garland. We write you to hold on. Let me make this a little bit bigger because I'm apparently 97 years old and I can't read <laughs> your, your eyes are anyway. Um, yeah, really? No kidding. My eyes are like 400 years old. <laughs> uh, this didn't help, by the way. <laughs> we write you today. <laughs> this is how we're going to do you it, guys. We, we write you today to call <laughs> on you to uphold the First Amendment's protections for the freedom of the press by dropping the criminal charges against Australian publisher Julian Assange and withdrawing the American extradition request currently pending with the British government, press freedom, civil liberty, and human rights groups have been emphatic that the charges against Mr. Assange pose a grave and unprecedented threat to everybody, constitutionally protected journalistic activity, and that a conviction would represent a landmark setback for the First Amendment. Major media outlets are in agreement. The New York Times, The Guardian, um, El País, Le Monde, and Der Spiegel have taken the extraordinary step of publishing a joint statement in opposition to the indictment, warning that it sets a dangerous precedent and threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and the freedom of the press. So just to... So I, I love this. This is phenomenal. I'm so happy that this is out there now. I mean, the, obviously, the only disappointing part is in a world that made sense, you should have like literally every single member of Congress. It's crazy every single that it member takes of the courage. Senate. That's what, right. right. Exactly. Because this is such a duh thing. Because let's not forget exactly what the original issue was with Julian Assange, where he released uh, some documents, some classified documents that he had gotten from um, Chelsea Manning. And it was called the collateral murder video. And what we learned is that the U.S. military, I believe in this particular case, it was in, was it Iraq or Afghanistan? It's one of the Iraq. two. It was in Iraq. Okay. So you had the U.S. government uh, basically murdering civilians and then circling around and doing what's called a double tap and then killing the first responders as well. And it turns out these were like literally journalists and then first responders. And the entire time that they were doing it, they were laughing about it. Now, again, like, I understand some things need to be classified, right? Like, you don't want the nuclear codes floating around out there. Everybody understands that. Yeah. But when you say, hey, we did something wrong with your money and in your name, American taxpayer, and then we're going to try to hide it when we mess up. No, that is not protected. That is not classified. In no world does that make sense. Right. And so Chelsea Manning having a conscience and releasing it to Julian Assange and Julian Assange doing what basically a journalist is supposed to do and running with it, to crack down on that just shows the corruption and the rot within the U.S. deep state where they think we're above the law and the biggest crime is not actually committing a crime like murder, 
uh, the biggest crime is exposing our crimes. Right. That's how they view it. And the only people who have been charged with the crimes that were portrayed in that video, n none of them faced any sort of charges. The only people involved in this who have been charged were Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange. Now, thankfully, Chelsea Manning was uh, pardoned or commuted at least. I don't remember if it was pardoned or commuted by Obama which is one of the, you know, few things you go, hey, good, well, I'm happy you did well, that. Well, but, and that's what this letter, you know, when we talked to uh, John and Gabriel Shipton right. here mm -hmm. when they were in town, um, you know, talking about what they were up to, and they gave us actually a preview. I think we actually broke the nose, news that this letter was um, in the works. They talked about how they didn't really expect any Republicans to sign on to it because the framing of it was drop this Trump era prosecution. And it was aimed more at pulling progressive support with the idea that they would be in a better position to pressure the Biden administration over it. I will say it's disappointing some of the names that aren't on this list. Um, people like uh, uh, Pramila Jayapal and Rokana, who I think have said, you know, in the past that uh, Assange should be released, that the charges should be dropped. So it is disappointing to see how few names are on here. And it also is insane some of the reaction they got to the listen to this one. This is from a Responsible Statecraft article. Um, resistance hero Alexander Vindman said, this is absurd. Assange was a tool of the Russian state and broadcast U.S. secrets that endangered Americans, which that's just factually wrong. Correct. Yeah. And here's the other thing is even if he, he wasn't, but even if he was a tool of the Russian state, was the information accurate? Or not like ultimately his motives in any of this are completely irrelevant. Um, the other piece is that, you know, they liked to, the reason this became sort of politically fraught for Democrats really is because he was involved in the embarrassing WikiLeaks disclosures of Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. And so he became a bad guy to like the resistance um, liberals. And so it shows how unprincipled they are too that, you know, these particular charges have nothing to do with anything um, that happened in 2016. This is all about those George W. Bush uh, disclosures. And yet a lot of liberal Democrats have flipped their view of Assange and basically don't care that the charges effectively, you know, not only criminalize him, but criminalize um, journalism as Obama and Biden in the first administration understood. And they've just sort of abandoned the whole thing. But I will say you, you do have to give, even though it shouldn't, we shouldn't live in a world where it takes courage to do what just happened here. Yeah. You have to give tremendous credit to Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, uh, Greg Cesar, Jamal Bowman, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because of the dynamic that you just explained. Yeah. Because of 2016 and WikiLeaks and the stuff on the DNC made it so that now Julian Assange is officially a pariah, so stay away from him, don't go near him. Now everything he does is tainted. I mean, that, that's the mindset. That's the pervasive ideology vis-a-vis -vis Julian Assange. And then you had these people said, no, not buying it, not buying it. And to your other point, I mean, you want to talk about hypocrites, what happened? I thought that, uh, you know, all the, the, the Trump-like Republicans are, oh, these are different Republicans. Oh, Trump's really close to pardoning Julian Assange. You watch. We're working on it. He's almost there. Right. There was all that talk about it. And I thought that the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses and those people, pff, bro, these are different Republicans. These are anti-establishment Republicans. They've even said some things that are like pro-Julian Assange. Well, where the hell is their stuff here? Oh, it said drop a Trump-era drop the Trump era case and that triggered you to not support it mm -hmm. when that again, that is a factual statement. It was a Trump era case. Doesn't matter if you agree with that or, or don't agree with that. Doesn't matter if you like it or don't like it. That's what it was. Yeah. So that's factual I'm for them to say that literally factual in there. Is, yeah. yeah. I can't touch it. And, and okay. And how many Republicans signed on to this? Donut, donut, donut.
So there is no anti-establishment populist right. That's not a thing. And there's only shreds of a populist left here where what did five of them standing up and doing the right thing and signing on to this letter. Seven Look, of them, I believe. Seven? I got one, two, three. Okay, I, I don't see the one, other two. ones. So here, I'll tell you the full so, okay, name. So this so is why I referred got, to at the beginning that some yeah. people jumped on after I don't think that. they jumped on. I think they just were like, they signed below that thing. Oh, 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 so, oh. So yeah, cut it off in this. Yeah, okay, Rashida Tlaib cut it off. There were seven progressive members. Um, it was uh, led by Rashida Tlaib. The other ones were Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Greg Cesar. Oh, that's right. Of course, Ilhan Omar was part of it. Yeah. How did I forget that? And she's not here on, in this uh, version I have from Rashida Tlaib's Twitter yeah. feed. But so that was the list of seven. Yeah, credit to those people. To For real, credit to those people. Mm -hmm. and, and look, I feel like this is an important point, too, because like I'm hard on these people when they mess up. Yep. So when they do something good, I want to incentivize that. Not that any of them are listening to me or give a shit what I say, but like I want to incentivize... Like, yes, you did something good. Pat on the back, pat on the head. Would you like to go for ice cream? Like, like this yeah. is good. Yeah, and then, you know, the hardest thing to do, especially when you are an elected Democratic official, is to go directly after the sitting president of the United States, who is your same party. So, and um, they do pay a price for that, by the way, just so everybody yes, understands. It's easy for me and you as an outsider to say, like, we are principled and we would do X. And you know what? I probably would. But at the same time, I probably have a lot less teeth uh, behind the scenes in terms of having sway if I piss off everybody around me. Yeah. You know I mean, so there are trade-offs, real-world pragmatic trade-offs. And while, you know, somebody like me with my personality, I'd probably step on a lot of toes, the upside of that is optically it looks like, oh, this guy's a principled crusader. But in terms of behind the scenes and getting stuff done, it probably is harder now that, you know, because Joe Biden's going to look at this and be like, piss off yeah now you now you did the wrong thing now maybe you're gonna get kicked off a committee now there's gonna be consequences as a result you're not gonna get to come to the white house to influence me on whatever the next bill is Correct. like yeah that's the game they play you know aoc had that interview with uh, david sirot on the lever podcast lever time i think it's called um recently and she was talking about she gave some specifics about the pressure that's brought to bear on them which i thought was very revealing and she said that you know biden or his various administration lackeys would like get on the phone with them and be like if you're not with us like what you don't trust us you don't believe us so they would use all this like emotional manipulation basically to try to would be the thing force consent works the least on i know that would work that. yeah but it's very like i mean i'm not excusing it whatsoever but they try to use normal like human interactions and weaponize right, them against yeah. you and make you feel like you're betraying like your people basically if you don't do what we want you to do see but they don't understand what aoc doesn't understand what all most of these people don't understand is they have an ace up their sleeve and they're totally unaware of the ace up their sleeve yeah which is you have the bigger like following among the people like if Absolutely. you count like social media following and stuff like Joe that Biden people might poo poo that and be like oh whatever like no but that actually matters if you call for direct action if you say we're going to put bodies in the streets or whatever and again i understand this is a it's not an easy thing to do it's like to call up the troops or whatever it's not, it's not an easy thing to do but at the same time you have that ace up your sleeve and you never use it you act like you know you have as much power as like some fourth down the line staffer in the white house who nobody knows the name of and that's yeah. not true you have much more power than they do yeah so if they just grew a pair it'd be a lot nicer but look again i don't want to beat up on them too much because the fact of the matter is zero republicans signed on to this pathetic losers and there was seven democrats who did sign on to this and uh they deserve tremendous credit and the other democrats and every republican deserves tremendous shame yeah and there needs to be even more pressure applied to 
potentially shame the Biden administration into doing the right thing. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Right. Yep. Um, there was another thing that came to our attention, which is this whole Dominion voting system versus Fox News lawsuit is unfolding. Uh, I think the trial starts on Monday. So we're like they're doing jury selection like as we speak, which is kind of wild. Some of the texts that have already come out and exchanges that have already come out just could not be more damning for Fox News about the fact that and this is what's relevant legally. They knew that what they were peddling was bullshit and they knew Sidney Powell was crazy. They knew this was all nonsense. And yet for ratings, profit, clout, whatever, they continued to push these claims that they knew were complete lies and nonsense. Well, there was a new piece of this that MSNBC got their hands on, which is extraordinary. Leaked audio of a conversation between a Trump campaign official and a Fox News producer, wherein you will hear the, the Trump campaign official admit that they know there are no problems with the Dominion voting machines. Take a listen to this. Are any of the machines, I know it was on War Room the other day with Steve Bannon, have any of the machines been looked at? He had said that one was looked at in Georgia. Uh, I'd have to check on that in terms of Georgia. I know during the audit they did check on those machines. Um, they're really, you know, the, the, if we just go off the record for one sec here. Yeah, of course. Um, I, I, want, I don't want us to say it if it's not. That's why we're yeah, checking. I would, I would, I would, I think they have looked at the machines. Um, when, the, when the Secretary of State did its audit, uh, there, there was a lot, I think, a fair bit of looking at the machines. Um, you know, the audit came in pretty darn close to what the machine count was with the receipts. So, you know, I don't know the outcome of those, but our understanding, again, this is with the Secretary of State's office, is that there weren't any physical issues with machines on those inspections. Again, that was on December 5th, 2020. Trump campaign officials saying there weren't any physical issues with Dominion voting machines. No inconsistencies. I also love how he's like, oh, I have to go off the record to just admit the truth that there were no problems with these machines. What I'm amazed with is the fact that when you hear stuff like this, you're reminded that real life politics is a lot more like Game of Thrones than you think it is. Like the way these people are acting is Machiavellian, mm -hmm. conniving. They know they're lying, but they continue to do it anyway. They all whisper the truth behind the scenes. You know what, Crystal, these are educated people. If you're, if you're in the top echelon of the Trump campaign, if you are a Republican senator, though I probably have 100% ideological disagreement with these people, these are educated people. Ted Cruz is Ivy League educated. You're telling me he doesn't know that Donald Trump didn't win the election when Joe Biden won the popular vote by 7 million votes? You're telling me he doesn't understand that? Now, this is a guy, by the way, Trump called him in in the wake of all you know the, 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 the election loss and trying to figure out a path forward. He called in Ted Cruz and asked him, hey, would you defend me in the Supreme Court saying I won the election? Mm. And you know what Ted Cruz said? It would be my honor, sir. Oh. This is a guy. He knew 100 percent. This is bullshit. It is not true. Forgot Trump didn't that. win. And by the way, yeah, I will do this. Uh. What does that tell you about these people? They are the grossest, careerist. I mean, literally all this is, Crystal, is this. 
Yeah. Well, well, where's my insane base going? Let me follow them because I, that's the only viable path. Yeah. And you have people like Tucker Carlson also proving this. Tucker knows it's all bullshit. He called Trump a demonic force. Right. He basically said, so I, I hate, hate this guy him. with the burning passion. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's out on his show coddling his ball sack. Just this week. Yeah. Non, nonstop. Yeah. None of these people are honest actors. And that's what drives me crazy because as somebody who talks politics and I am an honest actor, I make, to bring back Game of Thrones again, I make the same mistake Ned Stark makes where I project w my values onto others. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm telling the truth. I'm being honest here. I'm just going to take you at face value when you say, no, don't. Yeah. They're lying. They know they're lying. There's a few things that I think really come out in the text, which are just embarrassing on every level for Fox, which is initially there's this impulse coming from Rupert Murdoch and others. That's like, all right, we got to like convince people that Joe Biden actually won. And then very quickly, they see the ratings completely tank. They see Newsmax and One America News Network gaining all this following and they panic and they're like, all right, well, guess we got to do what we got to do and like sell the nonsense. And that's what's legally rele relevant here because they have to prove actual malice, which is that you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. But it's also embarrassing because it shows how impotent they are. There's a new piece out from uh, Gabriel Sherman in Vanity Fair about that goes deep dive into like Rupert Murdoch and the family and this whole succession drama and all of this. And there's this one part where he reports that before the 2020 election, Murdoch hosted DeSantis and his wife at one of his vineyard or whatever and told him before 2020 was even done that he and Fox News, Fox News, the organization would back him for president in 2024. How is that going? How is, is the is the base swayed? At Did best, they lead their little noses in the right direction? No. And it show and it just shows you like whatever the hold they used to have over the Republican base, they don't have it anymore. They don't have it anymore. And I think that's a reflection of like a different media landscape. They helped to build up Trump, who was ultimately like the monster that ate them in a lot of regards. The Frankenstein story. That's yeah. the, that's exactly it. That's exactly what happened here. Yeah. So and just to give some more information, these are things that I covered earlier in the week. Uh, there was reporting from Mediaite that Brett Baer had created an entire special debunking claim for claim all of the rigged election nonsense. Yeah. Was spewing. Yeah. The, the executive producers didn't even hear out Brett Baer or run the special or give him an answer. Brett Baer asked them like, hey, can I, you know, I made this special, let's run this special. Radio silence in response. Wow. So in other words, they were, they were presented on a silver platter, a golden opportunity. You can even cover your ass here legally from any issues in the future by saying, hey, we just presented both sides. They would have, that would have been good enough for them to get away without any legal liability. Potentially. Right? Yeah. And nope, they didn't do it. And the other thing is another uh, admission of guilt. There's reporting from the law and crime outlet that um, so one of the one of the linchpins of one of the conspiracy theories. Remember, the kookiest conspiracy theory by Sidney Powell was that and I'm not kidding about this. Hugo Chavez was helping to swing the election for Joe. But they didn't even say Maduro. They said Hugo Chavez was <laughs> dead, by the way. Show you how insane these people are. Right. They said the Dominion people are working with Hugo Chavez and the Venezuelan government to flip it to buy because, you know, Maduro, Hugo, dead Hugo Chavez. If there's one thing they love, it's corporate Democrats. Because they're not they're not going to try to coup us at all. We promise. Yeah. Like, OK, sure. They're working together like this. Yeah. Joe Biden is a secret Venezuelan style communist. Like, yeah. What are we talking about? Well, anyway, you know, one of the people who was like the linchpin of that conspiracy theory sued. He was like, this is insane defamation. I have no idea what any of you guys are talking about. I'm not affiliated with this in any way, shape, or form. You're dragging my name through the mud. He was, you know, his name was posted all over the place yeah. or whatever. So he sued. You know, we just learned 
Fox News settled with him out of court. Yeah. So you know what that means for the people who might not understand this legal terminology is uh, he got paid probably yeah. millions and millions of dollars, which is an admission of, yeah, we know we fucked up, bro. Yeah. We know we fucked up. And Fox News is trying to do like First Amendment, free speech. And it's like, you know, to like, yes, to a point. But when you know you're lying and night after night you put it out, like, that's a different deal. Now, I will say with regard to like this businessman and Fox News, since he was not a public person, he's not held like they Correct. don't yeah. have that higher standard right. yeah. of actual malice. So the legal landscape is a bit different. And I'm certainly not a lawyer. But for what I'm, from what I've read, Fox is in real trouble in this trial. The judge just uh, sanctioned them because they were hiding evidence in the discovery process that then the lawyers got their hands on. Some of it might have actually been this audio that we just got to listen to. They weird lied about Rupert Murdoch's technical title and role within Fox News because they were trying to protect him. So they wanted to make it seem like he was very uninvolved in like the day-to-day decision-making at Fox News. So yeah, this is going to be a fascinating one to watch unfold. And there's a real possibility that Tucker or Sean Hannity or Maria Bartiromo or Blue Dobbs or all these people are actually forced to testify at this trial. Yeah, that's true. And I look forward to that. Um, I had one more point, but it escaped me. So I guess we can we can move on. Well, let's talk to our guest then. Right, um, very it. excited to be joined by Norman Finkelstein. He has authored a new book called I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom. Let's get to it. Professor, welcome. Great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. You um, were my... Uh, you were my... Uh, Obsession during the Bernie campaign. <laughs> well, that is easy there, fella. Very don't, flattering. Don't hit so on my thank lady. You. <laughs> thank so, you. Uh, I'm speaking to intellectual uh, and political obsession. I, I thought you were on the ball uh, and um, you were the best during that period. It was very invigorating, energizing uh, to watch your commentary uh, during that period. And uh, uh, I should give it a formal recognition. Uh, of course, when I first heard your name, I thought, okay, she's got to be a flight crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> you judge me prematurely, sir. That's correct. That's <laughs> correct. And I started to watch the program, and I started to tell everybody, you really have to watch uh, Crystal Ball. She's just the best. Well, thank uh, you. That's unbelievably flattering. I really, it means a lot to me um, coming from such an intellect as yourself. And the Burden campaign is actually a good place to start with. Like, what do you make of his two successive campaigns? What do you make of the relative success of those campaigns, given the, you know, utter decimation of the left in, you know, most of my political lifetime? And what do you think are the particular rocks that it crashed into? Well, that's actually a big question. I'm going to try to summarize it briefly, and then you can pursue any line that seems relevant to you. But the most important thing, excuse me, the most important aspect of the Bernie campaign, in my opinion, is that it brought to the surface a political possibility that rarely, that uh, with rare exceptions, anybody thought was really uh, a plausible political campaign. When I say almost uh, rarely, uh, with uh, rare exceptions, that includes Bernie Sanders. When Bernie Sanders went out in 2016, his expectation was he was just going to do some stump speeches for his socialist agenda uh, and then retire back into his home. Uh, that, and then he was totally shocked, as he said many times, that suddenly, like mushrooms after a rain, the huge numbers of people started to show up. And so 
what the Bernie Sanders campaign um, demonstrated was that there's this huge potential out there for building a class-based or class-struggle uh, political campaign and agenda. Uh, Bernie did a lot of, uh, I, I should say, firstly about Bernie himself, uh, as many people said, Bernie for 50 years has been saying the same thing. And of course, there was a lot of truth to that. The thing was, it's not that Bernie caught up with the times. It was that the times caught up with Bernie Sanders. That is to say, in the 1970s, the Bernie-style politics had very relatively little resonance in the United States uh, for the simple reason that the economy, for most people, I would say for the overwhelming majority of people, the economy was functioning. Functioning meant that each generation had a reasonable expectation that it would li li live a better life than the generation that preceded it. And so Bernie espoused a socialist, uh, a quasi-socialist uh, agenda, but the times were not yet ripe for it. And um, if you go back to my generation, even in the Marxist uh, writings of the time, uh, you'll be surprised. Uh, I know you majored in economics, but I don't know how much you know about the history of Marxism in, in general or in the US. Uh, in the United States, the main writings in the 1960s about Marxism by the Marxist left were about Marx's concept of alienation, meaning alienated from your job. The, the assumption was you would have a job. The assumption was you would have a nine to five job, five days a week, 40 hours a week. You would get a pension, you would get vacation and so forth. That was the assumption for our generation the problem was most people felt alienated from their job. Most people felt unfulfilled by their job. Most people were looking for meaningful work. So at that point, people turned back to what was called the young Marx, not the contrast was between the young Marx and the mature Marx. The young Marx talked about alienation, alienation. So it resonated. But the Marx that talked about capitalist crises, the Marx that talked about the polarization of wealth, uh, that had very, very little resonance. Now, beginning in the 1980s, over a very long term, but nonetheless beginning in the Reagan era, a stagnation in wages set in, and simultaneously, a polarization of wealth. And so come 2020, when Bernie sets out on the campaign trail, uh, suddenly those tendencies, which began in the early 1980s, those tendencies had reached a critical point, critical mass, and people started resonating to the Bernie uh, campaign. It took a while for those tendencies to unfold, but once they had, Bernie, uh, as I said, his main, his main uh, importance, in my opinion, was he brought to the surface a class-based agenda, which now its time had come. Mm -hmm. I would say Bernie was quite sharp, acute, uh, in having clearly defined, and these are not easy things. When I, I've been reading a lot of the old Marxist uh, literature from the beginning of the 20th century. And one thing that's very striking when you read the literature is the difficulty in defining a political slogan. Now, it may seem to you perfectly obvious what a, a political slogan should be at any particular moment. But in fact, that's one of the most difficult things in politics, to define the right slogan for the right moment, which will advance the cause. And Bernie, it took him time, but he came up with the right slogans. It was very simple. It was Medicare for all, 
abolish student tuition, abolish student debt, a Green New Deal. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I think those four were the main, there was one other, but it's, it just slipped my mind. Uh, and so it was hugely successful. Now, I don't want to take up all your time, even though I said that question was broad. Mm -hmm. I want to just get to the uh, the second uh, 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 the second part, uh, namely, what went wrong. And I think, first of all, we ought not to forget, and you, uh, uh, Crystal, will know better than anybody else, because I watched you religiously during the Bernie campaign. <laughs> you, know, more than anyone else, will know how close Bernie came in 2020. I think that's all completely forgotten. Yeah, that's so but, true. Uh, up until South Carolina, up until South Carolina, it, like, it looked like he was going to win. People like James Carville and Chris Matthews were, you know, they were decomposing <laughs> on screen on, in real time. They were becoming positively hysterical at the prospect of this Bernie victory. So were it not for South Carolina, now I don't think South Carolina was inevitable. Remember, and I'm telling you things I know you know, in the last week before that South Carolina primary, polls were showing that Bernie would win in South Carolina. It was at that point that the screws were turned on Jim Clyburn, who up to that point said he would sit out recommending any, endorsing anyone in the South Carolina primary. The screws were turned on him. He endorsed um, Biden. And uh, at that point, the exit polls right after the primary showed that 60% of Blacks were influenced by that Clyburn endorsement. And then as you know, right afterwards, uh, Obama entered the scene, turned the screws on uh, Pete Buttigieg and probably also Amy Klobuchar, and so to speak, the rest is history. Had Bernie won in South Carolina, and as I said, it was kind of just a fluke that he lost. Had he won, then it was clear he would win Super Tuesday and he had the, the nomination in his bag. Yep. And then you can go on to say, I think he probably would have destroyed Trump in the debates. And instead of between 2016 and 2020, we sat through a, pre, a, a Donald Trump presidency. It was pretty close that we would have sat through a Bernie Sanders presidency. Now, I recognize that the moment he got the ne nomination, the whole ruling elite would have uh, uh, coordinated, collaborated to stop Bernie. And that would have been a very big hurdle uh, to pass. But, sure. uh, that were good. The prospects were quite good for the Bernie campaign. Now, let me just get to the last part, what went wrong. In my opinion, the main thing that went wrong is uh, Bernie did not follow through on what he promised. Bernie was repeatedly asked during the campaign a simple question. Mr. Sanders, how can you possibly believe that you can get your agenda through Congress? And that was obviously a reasonable question. And Bernie always answered the same way. I thought his response was reasonable. He said, of course, I can't get through it, get my agenda through Congress the way Congress is currently structured. The only way I can get it through is I bring masses of people into the street, uh, that you have to organize, educate people, and bring them out into the street, just like during the civil rights movement. You know, you have to commit civil disobedience. You have to be willing to go to jail. I think there were the young people 
those who turned up for those 25,000 person rallies uh, in all the major cities, I think the young people would have done it. Yeah. You know, their future is at stake. Yeah. They were ready for that. They were primed for that. But what happened? Once Bernie lost the campaign, he became what he had been for 40 years. He became the gadfly in Congress again. He had to make a choice. The choice was very simple. It was stark. The choice was if he wanted to have Biden's ear, if he wanted to have Biden's ear, he had to drop the idea of bringing young people into the streets or people in general, but in particular young people into the streets, because he knew Biden would then say, what the hell are you doing? What are you doing with your revolution? This is Congress. What are you talking about? And so he had to make a choice between trying to influence as much as possible Biden behind closed doors or using his platform in Congress with a Biden presidency to bring masses of people into the street and try to push through a radical agenda. He chose the first. And from there on in, I think it was pretty much a disaster. And I think I'm deeply deeply disappointed in uh, Bernie now, sometimes to the point of real visceral anger, uh, the way he's conducted himself, say, on the question of Ukraine, saying things like, I trust Biden. Why would you trust Biden? Can you tell me something about his career in foreign policy that, uh, that um, uh, would uh, cause you to trust him on foreign policy? What, was he so great in the war in Vietnam? Was he great in the war in Iraq? Uh, is his judgment so good? Uh, was, he, was he great on Blinken? And the fact that now Biden, excuse me, Bernie dismisses anybody who criticizes him. He says, quote, who's paying you? What, you have to be paid to be critical of the war in Ukraine? You have to be paid for saying, hey, sending over $100 billion to Ukraine without no checks, no balances, no oversight, uh, there might be a problem there. You have to be paid to say, you have to be paid to think that, well, maybe a lot of people who are quite conservative normally, like John Mearsheimer over at University of Chicago or uh, uh, Jeffrey Sachs. Okay, Jeffrey Sachs is a liberal, but many people who are quite conservative say the United States provoked the war. Let me ask you so, this. Let me, hey, Norm, mm -hmm. let me cut you off there. Let me ask you this. Uh, why couldn't Bernie have done both of those things? So, for example, um, one of the arguments I made is that when push came to shove and it looked like Bernie was going to drop out, he sat down with Joe Biden and it looked like he did a hostage video where he was endorsing Joe and saying, Joe, do you support Medicare? Uh, do you support $15 minimum wage? And Biden was like, yeah, oh yeah, Bernie, I support $15 minimum wage. It seemed very contrived, very fake. But why couldn't he have basically tried to have the ear of Joe Biden, talk to him reasonably, say, look, here are my demands. If you want my endorsement, this is what you have to do. Here's like a list of executive orders or whatever. And give Joe Biden a chance, and then if he doesn't follow through, that's when you effectively uh, call your people up to, to put some bodies in the streets. I feel like it's a little bit of a false choice to say he either could choose one or choose the other. I think he could have done both. I think you could have effectively tried to navigate within the system, and then if you don't get the results by wheeling and dealing and talking to Joe and, and making agreements, if you can't get the result, then you put the bodies in the streets. I, don't you view that third option as a real possibility? It depends. Look, I'm not a mind reader. I'm like Joy Reid. I don't believe on body language readers to figure out what's going on in people's heads. Uh, my assumption is that if that had been a real option for Bernie Sanders, and since he kept referring to our revolution, and he titled his book on the campaign, Our Revolution, 
and he raised young people in particular, their expectations very high, I have to assume that unless he was a liar, which I find completely implausible, I have to assume that he weighed in his mind the possibility of bringing people into the street and how President Biden would react to that. And President Biden, he's a man who works in Congress. He's a person who has a very conventional approach to politics. He has obviously his allegiances to elites. And I think Bernie reached the conclusion, but I can't prove it. I just say based on what one appear, one can deduce from his track record that he was an honest guy, he was a decent guy, and he's an honest guy and a decent guy, but he didn't think there was a, that third option. Otherwise, I can't for the life of me figure out why he didn't exercise that third option, especially since in the course of the campaign, he kept saying, that's what I'm going to do. In order to push through my agenda, I'm going to bring people into the streets. Now, you could say that was all rhetoric, that was all talk, he never intended to do it. Okay, that's a possibility. But assuming, as I do, that he was speaking in good faith, my view was that he must have, you know, got that, uh, to use the expression I used earlier during our pre-conversation, uh, uh, pre he must have gotten that vibe, and he knows Biden. You know, Biden's a personal family friend, as you know. Uh, he got that vibe. This is not going to work with Biden. And so he did, uh, you know, Bernie has uh, quite impressive uh, levels of energy. And I'm sure behind the scenes, he's doing everything he can to sway Biden. But in my view, uh, that's very limited. It's very limited what you can do. There's a well, expression that goes... I mean, we've really seen how limited that has been yes. in, you know, you had Build Back Better... A lot of that was architected, architected by Bernie to start with. And then it was like every week they would shoot some other critical piece of it into the in the head until Joe Manchin just says, no, we're going to kill the whole thing. And then everyone is delighted when you get anything through uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. But I think we've seen very clearly the limits of the tactics that have been chosen for whatever reason they've been chosen. Um, I want to get into some of the, the core of I your book. Say, Go ahead. I would like to just make one last comment. Sure. Now imagine what would have happened if he brought masses of people in the street. If they were willing, and I think they were. I know the young people. I teach them. I'm in constant communication with them. Uh, I think they would have gone to jail for something like abolishing that student debt, yeah. for abolishing college tuition. You know, what would have happened if he had called the people out or his organization had called the people out? Remember, my generation... Not that I'm going to sing its praises, it has its high points and it also had its low points. Um, in my generation, during the war in Vietnam, we went to Washington every six months. I'm talking about mass mobilizations every six months. Mm. I'm talking about massive car caravans. If our, if our generation was willing to do it, there's no reason to doubt that your generation would have done it. But he, he didn't exercise that option. Yeah. Um, I want to get it to some of the core of your book here. Mm. And, you know, there's been this whole discussion lately. Um, you mentioned you're on with Brianna Joy Gray, partly sparked by a viral incident on her show where someone who was on the program to talk about how the left and their wokeism is destroying our children or families or something like that. And she was unable to define this term wokeism which has come to be this sort of umbrella term for the right wing to dispatch with 
anything that they don't like. You know, they blamed the Silicon Valley Bank um, collapse <laughs> on wokeism because they had like a gay person on the board or something like that. So I wonder if you could contrast the right wing obsession and use of the word woke and their own critique of identity politics with the critique of identity politics that you have. Well, I watched that incident, or at least I watched the reruns of that incident with um, Rihanna Joy Gray. Uh, in my opinion, she probably did act in good faith. It wasn't a gotcha moment. Oh, no. She, it, she was just popular. trying to define the term. That was a very, yeah. <laughs> very simple, her, straightforward question. I've seen her try to do that multiple times with multiple guests, too, who people bring up wokeness. She's like, just tell me first what you mean by wokeness. That's totally sincere. Yeah. Oh, Brianna Joy Gray is a former corporate lawyer, so she knows defining terms is the first, you know, the first aspect right. of conversation or briefs. You have to define the terms. Okay, um, when that incident happened, it did cause me to reflect because a lot of the book was written in a manner of self-discovery. I can't say I came into the book with a big concept and I was going to lay out the argument that had already been uh, pre-formulated in my mind. I came, I worked through the argument as I was writing the book. And so when that question came up, I had to ask myself, what do I mean by wokeism? Because I do use the term, uh, maybe the far right uses it also, but you'll remember in my generation, it was the left that coined the term political correctness or PC. It was a kind of self mockery, but then that PC was appropriated by the right. Uh, in this case, even if the right uses the term wokeism, I'm perfectly at ease with it. But what do I mean by it? I would say wokeism is basically three things. Number one, wokeism is the attempt by the Democratic Party to create a new base uh, with the mass defection exiting of the white working class. In my generation, the base of the Democratic Party were white workers. Uh, it was the trade unions, which were the real core of the Democratic Party, and the white working class in general, which had prospered uh, in administrations beginning with FDR, uh, the New Deal, and so they they were quite loyal, very loyal, not quite loyal, very loyal to the Democratic Party, even to the point my brother tells a story that my father, who was a factory worker, uh, my father once whispered into my brother, my elder brother's ear, he said, always vote Democrat. <laughs> Republicans are for rich people, or Democrats are for working people. That was the, the uh, uh, sine qua non of the Democratic Party, that the white working class, well, that changed. And it changed actually quite quickly. If you ever have the chance, you should sit down and go and uh, Google uh, Mario Cuomo, the father of Andrew mm -hmm. Cuomo, Mario Cuomo, 1984 uh, Democratic Party convention. And Cuomo's speech, which was very famous, was actually elegantly delivered, elegantly written and elegantly delivered, was that this whole pay-in to the working class, the white working class, and that the Republicans were the party of the rich, the leisure class. Well, that's obviously changed. Um, the, there's been mass defections of the white working class from uh, the uh, Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party had to create a new base. And it, it, uh, the base it chose was the uh, identity politics base. Uh, if you look at the, uh, I watch closely on YouTube, the Democratic Party um, convention in 2016 and 2020. And if you watch it, uh, the working class is just barely mentioned. The only one who mentions the burning, uh, uh, working class is AOC, I think the second day of the convention. Uh, and, and that was about it. Uh, it was all taken up with various identities, uh, biological identities. Um, 
uh, was the the core. And and you saw it with Biden. Uh, he said he chooses a black female vice presidential candidate. He then says I'm going to nominate a black female Supreme Court justice. Then he chooses a black female lesbian uh, press secretary. Uh, that's where they're going. Though Biden is an interesting case. He's a more ambiguous case because clearly from the, the last State of the Union address, he's clearly trying to pitch uh, his campaign, his next campaign, uh, to try to win over some of that white working class. So the first aspect of woke politics is the replacement of the white working class by the identity politics class, uh, or groups, not class, groups. And number two, woke politics is the Democratic Party instrumentalizing identity politics in order to derail any class struggle or class-based campaign. Mm -hmm. and that's not speculative. That's not theoretical. Uh, that's factual. So if you take the high priests and high priestesses of identity politics, there is Ta-Nehisi Coates attacking Bernie Sanders for being, quote, weak on the black reparations question. Then you have um, Angela Davis saying that Bernie is weak in conceptualizing racism. Then you have um, Kimberly Crenshaw telling the New York Times that the real action is not with these old white Jewish schmucks like Bernie Sanders. The real action is the um, uh, corporations. It's Amazon, which now is honoring Black Lives Matter oh my God. and is honoring gay pride. That's where the revolutionary action now is, says Kimberly Crenshaw. And then you saw this very strange phenomenon, not strange, I should say, but very indicative phenomenon. The New York Times is now the most woke institution on God's earth. The characteristics that most, the salient characteristics of New York Times during those campaign years were number one, hyper, hyper woke, and number two, hyper, hyper anti-Bernie. As you recall, Crystal, with the first half of the second campaign, Bernie was whited out of the times. Mm -hmm. And then when he gained too much momentum, despite the whiting out, then they start to go at him with a vengeance. Now, that to me is a very telling fact. The most woke institution in the United States was also the most anti-Bernie institution. Then you go to MSNBC, another hyper-woke media outlet, which is also hyper-anti-Bernie, much more anti-Bernie, incidentally, than Fox News, which gave him a very warm, kind reception. Uh, you had Joy Reid, as I mentioned earlier, bringing on a body language reader to prove yeah. that Bernie is a congenital liar. Then you have hyper, hyper woke the view. And who's the hyper, hyper, hyper presence on the view? It's Whoopi Goldberg. And what does Whoopi do? She snarls at Bernie. When are you getting out of this race already? Mm. That, that was um, the moment of truth. All of these super woke radicals, the moment of truth they all joined the Democratic Party to stop the Bernie locomotive. And num that's number two. 
The identity politics has been weaponized to stop dead in its tracks a class-based politics. And number three, wokeness is a very convenient way for rich white liberals to have their cake and eat it. That is to say, to show how radical they are, Mm -hmm. to show how cutting edge they are without having to sacrifice any privilege, without having to pay any price. So everybody at Martha's Vineyard, they all want Angela Davis to speak there so they can show how down with the hood they are. They're rubbing shoulders with Angela Davis. If you go to the web, you see a lecture that Angela Davis gave at the University of South Carolina. I was curious, because Angela Davis was a uh, a real inspiration for me in my youth. So I tuned in what she's saying now. She's introduced by this Southern belle with this beautiful shock of blonde hair, who is the second richest billionaire in South Carolina, and the second richest billionaire only half jokingly gives a talk about how she and Angela have so much in common. (laughs) Well, that's true. How she and Angela have so much in common. That's these woke people who get to pretend to be so radical and cutting edge without having to make any sacrifice. Now, you will not remember, unless you have a memory reaching back to before conception, uh, in the most literal sense, (laughs) there was a famous incident in the 1960s when the Black Panthers were being hounded by the government. Leonard Bernstein, who was a kind of Martha's Vineyard liberal, he invites the Black Panthers to his home and all the famous people on the left, what we called back then the radical chic, Mm -hmm. attended this soiree at Bernstein's home. And then along came this uh, journalist named Tom Wolfe. He attended the event. Wolfe was on the right end of the spectrum. And he wrote this absolutely scathing um, uh, send up of that soiree And it really was so humiliating to those who attended, not least Mr. Uh, Bernstein. And I personally have to say, when you read Tom Wolfe's book, it's to use a word from your generation. It's really cringe, horrible. (laughs) Uh, 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 Leonard Bernstein giving the hi-fi to the Panthers. But you could say in defense of Bernstein, That was an unpopular thing to do. True, yeah. And it ended up getting him in trouble. But now when the rich and the famous in Martha's Vineyard, they hang out with Angela, is there any price paid? Is there any sacrifice? Now, you might say to me, okay, Norm, uh, we're not martyrs. We on the left, we don't, you know, have any kind of desire to be nailed to the cross. Uh, So I don't accept your standard. 
To which I say, I don't agree. I think part of being on the left has always been, until recently, it's always been willingness to make a sacrifice. I was just reading last night Rosa Luxemburg's letters. So Rosa Luxemburg, who was a titanic personality, probably the most impressive personality in the whole history of um, Marxist socialism, uh, she spent many times in jail. And actually, she spent almost the whole of World War I in jail. And at one point, she's given the jail sentence, and uh, she's out on her own recognizance. And some people say, you know, maybe, uh, Rosa, you should jump bail and get the hell out of there, you know, because you've been in jail enough. Right. And she was a physically very frail woman. Uh, and she replied to one correspondent, if you allow me to just read it, it's just one paragraph. Sure. That there are comrades who can assume I would flee Germany because of the prison sentence. I could be quite amused by that if it were not at the same time rather saddening. Dear young friend, she's talking to a young man, her correspondent. Dear young friend, I assure you that I would not flee even if I were threatened by the gallows. And that is so for the simple reason that I consider it absolutely necessary to accustom our party to the idea that sacrifices are part of a socialist work in life, that they are simply a matter of course. You are right. Long live the struggle. That was the inspiration for my generation. And then when I see on the one hand, all of these, you know, phony identity politics radicals, Judith Butler announces in 2020, as if it were the Paris Commune, as if it were the Bolshevik Revolution, as if it were the Chinese Revolution, as if it were the civil rights movement, she announces, I am here to here with changing my pronouns to they, them. Let me um, ask you a little bit more. That's a real sacrifice. Let me ask that's you a, a little bit sacrifice. more about that, because, you know, I was talking about the difference between how leftists have a critique of identity politics or wokeism versus the, the right wing critique. And. Oftentimes, you know, the way I see it is very similar to how you see it. You won't be surprised to learn, which is that this is sort of like a roadblock thrown up in the way of any sort of more fundamental or class-based change. The right portrays it as actually in and of itself, this very radical transformation. Um, and they like to claim that this is a next evolution of Marxism. They'll explicitly tie it in with Marxist thought. And I wonder what your view of, uh, of that is. Well, for the most obvious reason, it's not. Actually, it's just the reverse of Marxist thought. I don't want to make a fetish of Marxist thought. To be perfectly candid, and I see no reason why not to be perfectly candid, <laughs> I've read very little of Marx in the last 30 years. I read voraciously as a young man, but I passed that stage for better or for worse, um, and I've read very little of it. But one thing you could say for certain, a Marx analysis always began or... Uh, uh, or essential aspect of it was class. 
Now, Marxism was never indifferent or unaware of non-class issues. When you read the literature from back then, I'm talking about the late 19th to the mid part of the 20th century, there was a, a rich debate about what was called the woman question, what was called the Negro question, what was called the Jewish question within the Marxist movement or socialist movement, forget about Marx for now, socialist movement. Uh, there was always a recognition that there were certain questions, women, blacks, uh, Jews, that was not reducible to class, that they ha it had aspects, it had, they had aspects which were not, which over, uh, that went past class, overflowed class, overflowed class. However, if you considered yourself a person of the left, there was a recognition that class was the fundamental political issue, not the only one, but the fundamental issue. Now you look at the identity politics. What identity politics did was it appropriated the questions, the woman question, the Negro question, the Jewish question. It appropriated the questions and lopped off the class. Mm. If you read Ibram X. Kendi, there are a couple of passing phrases, a couple of passing phrases referring to class. If you read um, Robin DiAngelo, a couple of stray fragments pertaining to class. Class has been lopped off, except in one critical sense, and probably for the exponents of identity politics, the most clo uh, close to their heart sense. They want to be part of, to use the language of um, the, uh, to use the language of the 1%. They want that 1% to include a proportional representation of, for example, women, of African Americans. They want to have their seat at the ruling class table. That's the aspect of class which they're very cognizant mm -hmm. of. True. And so, and now to tell you something, uh, uh, Crystal and Kyle, it's actually a realistic expectation. You know, because of this huge chasm that's opened up between the so-called 99% and the 1% in terms of income, it's very possible for the ruling elites to uh, bring in, absorb some members of these identities and basically pay them off in huge sums. I mean, we're talking about lots of money. Jeff Bezos, as you recall, he gave Obama $100 million. He gave Van Jones $100 million. Jack Dorsey gave Ibram X. Kendi $10 million. That's not small change. You know, in my day, there used to be a program, a drama, a drama series on TV. It was called The Millionaire. And the conceit of this weekly drama was there's this very, very rich philanthropist, as they're called. We call them, you know, capitalist pigs, but okay, philanthropist. And uh, each week he would give out to some do-gooding, uh, nondescript person a million dollars. 
there's this guy, Mark Anthony, in the film. His name was in the, the series. Mm -hmm. And he had this white envelope. And the last scene in each of the weekly dramas of this weekly drama series, he would take out the white envelope from the folder and give it to this recipient, this very decent recipient. And we watched that series and our hearts leapt. Mm. A million dollars. A million dollars. A million dollars was like going to Pluto and back. <laughs> it was an un inconceivable ski, uh, inconceivable sum. Now, I admit for inflation, as I said, I know you've got your degree in economics, so I'll admit for inflation, but a hundred million dollars is something altogether different. Correct. But they can hand out that money now because of this fantastic pol uh, polarization of wealth in our society. They can hand out a hundred million here, 10 million here, and then they just bring all these people on board. Does it rock the boat? Well, nobody or very few people bite the hand that feeds them. Yeah. Why yeah. is Bezos giving out that money? You know why? It's called a life insurance policy. Because Bezos is smart enough to know at some point there's going to be a national action by Amazon. Workers. It may not be this week. It may not be next week. It may not be next next month. But it seems pretty much inevitable. And so, I'll ask you to guess on which side will Obama be when there is a general strike of Amazon workers. Yeah. On which side? On which side will Van Jones be? On which side will Ibram X. Kendi be? I think that's pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah. To, uh, to sum your point up, we you need organizational and structural change. You don't want to like welcome a, a diverse flow of people into the top 1%. The point is to take power away from the top 1%. And when you were talking, it reminded me of uh, MSNBC. I remember them celebrating the diversification of the military industrial complex where they were bragging that like this new CEO of Raytheon or whatever was a woman and it was like all female leaders for the military industrial and they were celebrating that fact as if that's anything to celebrate. It's like, we don't care about the faces you put on the death machine makers. We just don't want you to use the death machines to kill like Yemeni babies. But to get back to one of the uh, main points you were talking about there, I feel like we're having two separate conversations. So on the one hand, there's the conversation about define woke, what is woke, what's a right-wing critique of wokeism versus a left-wing critique of wokeism. And then a lot of our uh, conversation thus far has been focused on identity politics, which I view as a slightly different thing. My definition of wokeism is um, authoritarianism in service of perceived social justice. So for example, you got some conservative speaker going to give, you know, a speech out on a college campus, Ben Shapiro, whoever it might be. And then you have a bunch of people who protest and say, you know, you're not going to give your speech here because you're a fascist or whatever. You sort of deplatform somebody. When I think of uh, wokeness, that's what I think. I think of things along along those lines, authoritarianism in service of perceived social justice. Um, but how do we... Um, I feel like in today's day and age, as you know, and I'm a very strong critic of wokeness myself, but at the same time, I want to sort of balance that with the fact that the right does call everything they don't like woke and they wage a war against it. And then also 
you do have a massive increase in recent years led by Ron DeSantis in Florida and in you know many other red states across the country. This massive rise, hundreds of like anti-trans bills, for example, the burn, uh, the not burning, excuse me, the banning of books. There's been 800 books that have been banned in Texas, 600 books that have been banned in Florida. And so what you see there is I would categorize it as like a right wing version of wokeness. It's like right wing authoritarianism where they're doing authoritarianism in service of their perceived social justice needs, right? Like they think it's social justice to get rid of the books they don't like, you know what right. I'm saying? So how do we balance, number one, doing a genuine left-wing critique of wokeness to say, hey guys, we should focus on class consciousness first and foremost. Like do that while also not feed into the framework of the right and like accidentally assist them in their totally disingenuous crusade against wokeness by which they define it as everything they don't like. Well, you know what, Kyle? That's an excellent question. And I don't think there's an e easy answer to it. Obviously, morality evolves, social mores evolve, and that there's going to inevitably be a resistance to what, in retrospect, was clearly a necessary evolution and transformation in social values and morals in general. I'm old enough to remember when up until 1973, homosexuality was defined by the American Psychological Association as a mental disorder. I'm old enough to remember that a woman who aspired to a large number of jobs, uh, these are all memories which, you know, maybe for you, uh, they sound strange, but they're vivid for me. In the employment sections of the newspapers, in the employment sections of the newspapers, the headings were women, men. There was no consciousness of that being odd or aberrant, let alone retrograde. There were specific jobs allotted for on the employment page to women and to men. And I'm not going to bore you by going through the 10,000 ways in which our society has evolved. And I think broad consensus is, with marginal exceptions, it has evolved for the better. So to the extent that what you call right-wing wokeism or the right-wing right -wing denunciation of wokeism is acting as an impediment to the positive transformation of our society, I, of course, agree it has to be resisted and fought. The problem, as I see it, is twofold. Number one, a lot of these questions that have come up are not clear cut, in my opinion. That if you examine, for example, if you examine closely, as I have, and I write about it at some length in the book, if you examine the abortion question, I do not believe that the question of abortion is as clear cut as liberals, woke people, the New York Times, Martha's Vineyard type. Uh, would make it out to be, and I do not believe it's correct to write off anybody who might have qualms on that question as being some right-wing Yahoo uh, religious fanatic or bigot. Well, cer certainly, just to cut you off for a sec there, certainly there's some gray area, but there are some things that go way too far, correct? Like Mike Pence talking about a national abortion ban, you know, or some states 
you know, they just tried to ban the abortion pill, uh, which would even uh, hurt women who get miscarriages, for example. I agree with you that there's some gray area, but some positions are far too extreme, right? Like overturning Roe versus Wade, for example. Listen, I totally agree, but I wish that your opinion could be articulated in the form that acknowledges the gray areas and not writing below yeah, everybody who disagrees with you as being some sort of antediluvian imbecile. Yeah, but I didn't do similarly, that. I didn't call similarly, them imbeciles. Similarly, I think there are legitimate questions about the, um, the trans issue. I, I'm going to speak about it in very broad terms. Now, let me be clear. Let me be clear. I am with Chairman Mao Zedong, who famously said in his report on the uh, uprising in Hunan province, which I'm sh shocked that you don't know, that Chairman Mao wrote, no investigation, no right to speak. That is to say, to translate into current language, which I hope you can air in this program. If you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, then shut the fuck up. So I admit I'm not knowledgeable because I think it requires a deep knowledge of science, biology, and medicine to speak on these subjects like the trans phenomenon. But I find it deeply troubling when people who have no medical knowledge whatsoever, no scientific knowledge whatsoever, at most took high school biology, speak with such authority on these subjects as if anybody who disagrees has to be some sort of redneck or yahoo. But, but those are the people trying to ban it, right? Those are the ones who are making claims that they have no idea what they're talking no, about. I, I think when I hear people speak authoritatively about gender fluidity, about there aren't two sexes, or to listen to Amy Goodman speak about people uh, who get pregnant, or listen to AOC say, people who menstruate. Well, I think reasonable people can say that's as a ridiculous a statement as saying there hasn't been climate change. It falls into the same lunatic But category. hold on. Who's I actually legislating? That. Who's legislating this stuff? You have people trying to ban no, any sort of treatment up till age 26. That seems like it's an overstep. Some people I might use some goofy language, but at least they're not trying to legislate, you know, uh, uh, trans people out of existence, whereas you do see that from the right. I will, uh, for the moment, I'm not talking about the legislation, legislative issue. Yeah, I'm talking that's what about, matters. Well, but I'm talking about the public conversation, which dismisses, you refer to, the authoritarian tendency among woke people, the real, I mean, I'm saying the, the liberal left woke, okay, not the right wing woke, mm -hmm. you refer to authoritarian tendencies. And I think one of those authoritarian tendencies is to pretend as if these questions are black and white, transparent. If you don't agree with us, then you're some sort of Yahoo or uh, redneck. I don't, I don't think that's true. Now, I fully admit, because I lived through it, I lived through it, I fully admit that many beliefs which we took for granted when I was growing up, of which I illustrated just a couple a moment ago, those beliefs were completely overturned. I, I recognize that. 
Remember, in my generation, I mean this literally, literally, L-I-T-E-R-A-L-L-Y, literally, you couldn't imagine gay marriage. It was not a concept that could even be conceived, let alone legislated. It was a concept that was not, uh, you couldn't process an idea like that. So I recognize that many ideas which are controversial today may turn out to be uncontroversial in the future. However, I would enter this stipulation since you talked about the issue of legislating. In the 1920s, a century ago, all progressives and radicals, among all progressives and radicals, really bar none, you know was all the rage? All the rage was eugenics. Eugenics, the scientific application to human breeding. And listen to this. Do you know who was the only one who opposed this idea of eugenics? The only one? It was deeply religious Catholics and Christians who believed that every child was born in God's image and that we should be equally loving and caring of all of God's children. So eugenics was the uh, uh, cause of progressives and radicals, even on the Supreme Court. As you might know, the famous case was uh, Buck, uh, Buck v, uh, well, what was the Buck case? Buck v, it'll come to me, the Buck, uh, uh, Buck case, uh, where a woman uh, was, um, she her, they said her uh, mother was mentally defective, and they said her children were mentally defective, and there was the issue of tying her tubes, uh, not, not allowing her to have any more children in the name of eugenics. Wow. On our Supreme Court, every judge, every judge, justice, every justice except one, every justice voted for uh, tying her tubes. The famous verdict delivered by Oliver, uh, it was Buck v. Buck v. Bell, Buck v. Bell. The famous verdict delivered by uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, which I suspect you have heard, you, you're aware of, was three generations of imbeciles are enough. Mm. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. That verdict was endorsed by the most liberal member of the court, Louis Brandeis. Yeah, scientific the racism right, right. was used by the oh. right and the left. It was the common perspective oh. at the time, and it was dead wrong. And by the way, that eugenics and scientific racism, it wasn't scientific at all, that helped birth the Nazi movement. So I take your point, but hold on. My, my, my point is the right does that cocksureness too on these social issues like trans things or whatever. And they legislate against whole groups of people. Whereas on the left, yeah, they might have some goofy language sometimes, but at least they're saying live and let live. And they're not trying to pass legislation banning transphobes, for example, or banning, you know, outdated language. I don't see, I don't see a parody here. I see the right actually cracking down legislatively on whole groups of people and I see the left sometimes being a little silly, dyeing their hair purple, and using some silly language. Uh, I, I can't quite agree with you there, Kyle. Look, well, uh, where am I wrong? I, I, uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to get to that, but I'm going to say I'm speaking in good faith because I can see you quite obviously are speaking in good faith. Uh, so I want to have an um, uh, amicable uh, uh, exchange of opinions, and we can also end up agreeing to disagree. On college campuses, uh, which have become strongholds of this wokeism, uh, there is a lot of taboos now on what you can and can't say. 
There are a lot of taboos about uses of pronouns. There are a lot of taboos about what can, now that's legislated. Admittedly, it's legislated at a college level and not at a federal or state level, but there is a lot of stifling, suffocating um, speech discourse on college campuses right now. I, for one, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I will not call a person they, them. I will not. I refuse. You want me to call you by your name? Fine. But they, them, that's a bridge too far for me. I'm not going there. Now, I'm sure Crystal's thinking, well, you know, Norm, if you're around in another 100 years, which obviously you won't be, everybody might be referred to as they, them. Yeah, that's a possibility. And I say I have to be open to that possibility. But I'm not doing it. And there are a lot of things. Uh, there is a very serious a very seriously stifling atmosphere on university and college campuses now. And I think it's disingenuous. And I'm not saying you're being disingenuous because you limited yourself to legislation. Well, but I, I think, think it's very I... disingenuous. Allow me, allow me. Sure. One last thing. During the Katanji Brown-Jackson hearing, uh, at one point, Ted Cruz was a kind of, uh, you know, psycho pervert. Um, Ted Cruz picks up, uh, he starts denouncing Ibrahim X. Kendi's book, Anti-Racism, you know, How to Raise an Anti-Racist Baby. And I'll tell you, I've gone through Ibrahim X. Kendi in my current book. You'll note I devote 100 pages to his books. They're really comics, but let's call them books. I go through it line by line. I'm with Ted Cruz there. He's a complete idiot. He's an imbecile. I don't think that should be taught in college. I don't think it should be taught in grade school, high school, college. No, that to me, that to me is a complete corruption. It's a corruption of language. It's a corruption of thought. And I'm old fashioned enough to believe in brace yourself standards because I respect my students. You know what respect my students means? I want them to be able to compete on the level playing field out in the real world. I want them to have a chance in life. Go ahead, Crystal. So and when you, what I was when you say... impose this garbage on them, you are diminishing their chances to compete out there in the real world. So it is, it's, it's not my view that I'll just speak for myself. It's not my view that, you know, the woke vein on the left liberal side has been inconsequential or, you know, irrelevant. I think it's been uh, incredibly, I think it has stifled dissent. I think everything you're um, speaking to there is real. But what I do get concerned about, especially recently, is that when there's only a discussion of the authoritarian tendencies on the left, it sort of masks some of the even more aggressive legislative authoritarian tactics on the right. And so that was the piece that I was interested in in teasing out here, because, you know, when you have um, and I, the other thing I would say is. Uh, liberal tendencies dominate university spaces and a lot of news organizations. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I think there are similar uh, codes of conduct and things you're allowed to say or not say and uh, sort of, you know, authoritarian crackdowns and speech in conservative environments as well in right wing environments where they're, you know, for example, you can't acknowledge that Joe Biden won the election, you know, basic some basic facts about, you know, things about covid might be off limits. 
Um, so I'm not sure that, that it's a phenomenon that's exclusively on the left either. It's just that the liberal uh, liberal control of universities is almost universal. Look, I agree with both of you. I don't want there to be any misconstrual at the end of this interview that you're not raising real issues and you're not making cogent, solid points. I agree with the both of you. Let me just then re, re uh, let me then just state, I wrote the book for the left. I wrote the book because I wanted to make a statement to the new generations about what's, you know, which way to go forward. Yeah. And I have enough experience from the 1960s where I did a lot of very stupid things. <laughs> well, let me I, actually, I, I, I want to ask you about that piece, actually. So I, I, so I just want to say, yeah. I didn't write the book about the right. And I don't even claim I was making a comprehensive picture. I was writing the book as a person of the left yeah. who's very concerned about certain tendencies which came rose to the surface in a very striking way during the two Bernie Sanders cam uh, campaigns where I saw a lot of hope, a lot of promise, and I saw a lot of sabotage. And I saw a lot of sabotage. And the book is about the sabotage. Well, yeah, I... The last thing I wanted to to get from you and then Kyle can close with whatever he wants is, um, are you actually hopeful because you do teach young people and interact with them all the time and, you know, wanted to write the book for, to sort of lay out some of the pitfalls that you see ahead? Um, are you hopeful that the Zoomers may actually take up the mantle, mantle of class politics? Because, I mean, their economic opportunities have been really stifled. You see, you know, you see pronouns and you see plenty of woke stuff in Gen Z as well, but you also see the Starbucks labor movement and you also see the Amazon labor union and you see support for candidates like Bernie Sanders. So what direction do you see that generation going in right now? Look, there's a lot of grounds for hope. I was in the 1960s and I passed through the Bernie campaign. I took the bus rides, as I said, every six months we went to Washington during the war, anti-war movement. Well, part of joining the Bernie campaign was I went on the buses out of state to knock on doors and try to recruit people to vote for Bernie. You know what struck me? What struck me was this new generation was much more serious than my own. Mm. First of all, on the buses in my generation, everybody's passing around the joints, and there was a, it was a highly sexualized atmosphere on the buses. Not this time. People were so sober. You know, those Bernie recruiters, half of whom were women, actually probably 60% were women. That's why the comment by Gloria Steinem was so disgusting. Now, she's a sack of shit. She always was. But to say that the women only went to the demonstrations for the boys? I mean, you have to be a real imbecile. You have to be, you know, in the old world, you have to be a real airhead <laughs> to make a comment like that. She's an airhead. And so there was a lot of seriousness. During the George Floyd demonstrations. I went. I was the only one over 30. Literally. Literally the only one. Why? Because it was in the middle of COVID. So older people were afraid to go and join the crowds. I didn't give a damn. Uh, I went. I joined the crowd. I went every day to the point where some of the young people would say, are you here again? I said, I'm here every night. <laughs> uh, it was usually 7 o'clock at Barclay Center in Brooklyn. We went. In any case, what struck me was the naturalness, the authenticity of the relations between the white and black people who were demonstrators, between the white and black demonstrators. In my day, if you were white, 
and they went to a demonstration in support of the Black Panthers or something like that. It was always tinged with the noblesse oblige because we really were privileged. We were white. It was a good era to live financially, economically. Or it was the radical chic, you know, these white young women saying, my brothers and sisters, you know, it was all just so crap. It was like Robin DiAngelo, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but nowadays, because there has been a relative homogenization of the working class, relative homogenization, what whites are doing, white young people, if they're coming out of the public university system, they're doing one notch better than blacks economically. They're living together. That was unthinkable in my day. You know, nowadays I talk to young people, their roommates, one roommate, if it's a white person, one roommate is black, one roommate's a lesbian, one roommate is this, that, or the other, you know, uh, they're because housing is, you know, it's difficult to find housing. So beggars can't be choosers. And if you have three people and you need a fourth to make that month's rent, you're going to take anybody who comes along. So they know each other personally. And there's real warmth. As I said, one of the wonderful things about teaching now in CUNY the classes consist of all working class kids and first gener- generation immigrant uh, kids in the CUNY system. So it is really, it's the rainbow coalition in that class, you know? Uh, and the warmth, the solidarity, and it's natural. It's not like I'm putting on the show, look at me, look how liberal I am, right. which is my it's generation. Yeah, It's authentic, it's real, it's real, it's deeply moving. And you see the progress, you know? The progress, of course, came at the expense of the polarization of wealth in our society and the homogenization of the working class. But it's real. So there's every ground to be hopeful. And as I said, I think the young people were prepared for real sacrifices had Bernie uh, tell them time to get arrested, time to, you know, not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Uh, I think people were ready for it. I saw them board those buses to go out of town, which wasn't easy, you know. And if you're a young person nowadays, you're so short on time because you have two jobs and you have to take care of your parents and you know the whole thing. So uh, on that grounds, as Brianna Joy Gray told me, uh, and I, I kept the line when I in, was interviewed by her a few weeks ago, she said with a certain amount of pride, and she, the pride was deserved, she said, you know, Bernie won every demographic under 30. Mm-hmm. That is to say, male, female, Latino, black, every demographic under 30. That's the future. If you want to know what the future is, look at that one stark fact. Bernie, can, Bernie the most un charismatic candidate in history, a septuagenarian Jew from Brooklyn, he managed to galvanize all these young people on the class struggle platform and wins every demographic. So there's every reason to be hopeful and optimistic, but any movement needs two things. It needs leadership and it needs organization. The Black Lives Matter turned into a disaster, a catastrophe. A, because it couldn't come up with the right slogan and to fill the void, the most quote unquote radical, which means politically irrelevant slogan, um, defund the police. It filled the void, which was a disaster. It became clear over time what a catastrophe it was. And second of all, the ruling class did what it always does. It bought off these leaders like, you know, Patrice Coolers and that type, uh, gave them lots of money. And of course, they helped themselves to a lot of money. Uh, and these leaders uh, were so crooked, so corrupt, these alleged leaders, these ruling class appointed leaders were so crooked and so corrupt uh, that uh, it makes young people who are hopeful uh, and willing to put their, you know, put themselves on the line, make the sacrifices that Rosa Luxemburg talked about, 
It makes them cynical about politics. Yeah, that's true. I think those are all yeah. great points. All right, Norm. I had a couple more questions, but we've run out of time, Norm. So thank you so much for joining us. Tell everybody where they can follow you and tell everybody where they can uh, get your book. Uh, you can get my book I, from Sublation, S-U-B-L-A-T-I-O-N. Don't ask me what that means. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Sublation.com or uh, from Amazon. And you just Google my name. I, I, have, a, I have a presence uh, and you'll figure it out. Uh, if you can, at the end of the show, I'll send you a link uh, for the uh, to access the book. Perfect. Um, otherwise, I want to say I, I totally enjoyed it. And uh, I'm glad that uh, both of you, but Kyle in particular, at a certain point, you know, articulate your real differences with me. And I hope, even if I didn't convince you, uh, that I, I conveyed the fact. I recognize those are real problems. I recognize, you know, the issues you raise are real. And I also recognize that a lot of my beliefs now may at some point prove to be um, the, uh, 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 behind the curve. I, I recognize that. On the other hand, I think we have to have a certain amount of humility, a certain amount of recognition that nobody has a monopoly on truth and that we shouldn't go around carrying on as if these questions have been resolved once and for all. And if you disagree, then you're some sort of you know backward religious fanatic or whatever. I don't agree. I, that's how I was as a young man. Yeah, And I realized, it's not that I grew up or I grew conservative. I realized, I maintain, I preserve my radical convictions and presumably will go to my grave with them. But I realized I was wrong. I made errors. And I, I you, know, you know what Muhammad Ali said, the boxer, he said, if you think the same thing as four, at 40 that you think at 20, then you've wasted 20 years in your life. And there's something to be said about that. Yeah. That life experience should at some point uh, influence you in some ways. Uh, otherwise, what's the point of life experience? But I never gave up my core beliefs. I remain exactly who I, in terms of my core beliefs, on the side of the oppressed, on the side of the victims, on the, on the side of the heart, uh, the down and out, uh, on the side of the victims, that's who I was at 16. And that's who I'll be, you know, till my dying, till my last breath. I didn't pay the sacrifices. I didn't make the sacrifices that Rosa did when she got out of jail the last time during World War I. When she was released, she was already an older woman. She was 47. By our standards, that would be like 57 or even more. She had, in the years in jail, she had a thick shock of hair. It all turned white. People were shocked when they saw her when she emerged from jail. She went right from the jail without missing a breath, uh, without the blink, uh, missing a, a beat. She went right into the revolution. There was a workers' uprising. People said, Rosa, be careful. They're hunting you down. They're going to hunt you down. They're going to hunt you down. She said, they said, you need bodyguards. She said, I go where I tell other people to go. Mm. And of course, she was hunted down. She was tortured. Mm. Her skull was smashed. She was then thrown into the sea. Her body was washed up three months ago. Um, those are the inspirations for me. And... Um, I didn't pay that kind of price. I didn't come close to paying that kind of price. But I think I could say without fear of being contradicted or accused of self-pity, I did pay a price for my beliefs. And I remain true to those beliefs that animated me as a youth, but with the caveat, I learned something from life didn't turn me into a reactionary, but I made errors. 
I was the type, I remember it. I mean, it's not as if it's some foggy memory. Uh, I deplatformed any people on the right in college. We blocked the doors. We blocked the doors. Because in my day, we claimed that we knew the science. The science was Marxism, Leninism. And the science was the truth. And anyone who disagreed is, you know, some sort of bourgeois or petty bourgeois. Uh, I, I was part of that. I wasn't even a small part of that. I was a big part of that. <laughs> I was a Maoist. It was wrong. I made errors. And a large part of the book is trying to make sense of what I did right in my life. And also, you know, I have a page in the book just has the people who inspired me in life, Paul Robeson, um, Rosa Luxemburg, and a number of others. Uh, and also a page to a picture. These are pictures of Noam Chomsky and his wife who were very close to me uh, for about 40 years, I would say. Yeah, it was about, no, 30 years, 35 years. Um, so a large part of the book is trying to convey what was good from my uh, life's involvement in politics and what was problematic mm -hmm. and what was dead wrong. And to say, try to avoid making the mistakes I made. There is certainly a lot that we can get from the book, and we are incredibly grateful for your willingness to, to talk to us and also for the debate. So thank you so much, sir. Have a great day. Thank you both so much. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Bye -bye. So that was Norman Fiegelstein. Uh, the book is I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It. And uh, I thought very interesting exchange in particular that you had with him, Kyle. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, I see the downside of political correctness or wokeness or whatever you want to call it. People know if they've looked through my channel history that uh, it's something I've we've covered. Been, we've been consistent critics, no doubt about it. Yeah. And I've even taken some crap for it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, for you sure. know, you're not sufficiently being left enough because you're criticizing wokeness or whatever. And But understand, so I saw it firsthand. I was one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats and Jenk basically got cooed because of, you know, blogs he wrote in the 1990s. I mean, that literally happened. They accused him of being a sexist and kicked him out of the organization. The whole staff said it's him or us. So, like, I've witnessed these things firsthand. Yeah. I understand it probably On better than anybody else. Level, like, yeah. yeah, I understand the pitfalls. Um, and, and, and I agree with his take on, you know, the weaponization of identity politics. I think if you have eyes and you're on the left, you absolutely saw it in 2016 and 2020. This is what they use. He listed a million examples of what they did to Bernie. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but it's also disingenuous on their part because it, it, it's a lie. Bernie marched in the civil rights movement to call him like not sufficiently, you know, down for the struggle for minorities yes. is preposterous. There was an article in the Daily Beast years ago about how uh, when he was mayor of Burlington, Vermont, he made it a trans mecca. This is like in the 1970s. Wow. We're talking. So it's it, like it's also just a lie. But I think my main issue, though, is uh, like what's more serious, the left being a little silly, a little goofy, sometimes authoritarian in language policing or the dozen or more states now trying to ban gender affirming surgery, some of them even for adults up until the age 26. And I just think that's a more serious issue. Look, my take on social issues and the culture war is very simple. I play defense. Right. Like, I understand you want to build a coalition around majoritarian issues. Everybody mm -hmm. knows that minimum wage, unions, health care. Everybody understands that. Right. Mm -hmm. Or at least I think if you're astute politically, you understand that. But like, should we sit back while, you know, they try to ban gender affirming surgery even uh, and even just medicine up until the age of 26? No. You or know, try I, to take people's kids if the kids are or, trans identifying. Or, or banning books. Yeah. Right. Like banning 600 books, 800 books. So I think my point is like. Yes, agreed. Sometimes the left gets a little goofy with the language policing. But if we just focus on that 
we're missing the legislative picture, which is literally more important because that is law. It becomes a law. So we have to, at the very least, play defense on the culture war and defense on on social issues and hundreds of anti-trans bills and banning books and things of that nature is a more serious thing than somebody used the term birthing person and I'm triggered by it. You yeah. know? Do I use the term birthing person? No. Do I care if somebody else uses it? No, I really don't. Yeah. Well, here's the thing is um, I don't have an issue with him writing a book that is, you know, 100 percent focused on the left. He's of the left. That's where he has the deepest knowledge. That's where he felt like he had the most like sort of wisdom and guidance to offer. I, I don't have any issue with that whatsoever. Um, but I do think, you know, I and we've talked about this before, like I used to take for granted that people would hear those critiques of the left and they just sort of like knew that the right was bad and doing these crazy things. And like, obviously, we're not part of that. Yeah, but they don't. But if you only focus your attention on the failures of the left, Correct. then people naturally go, oh, well, the right must be better, Correct. right? Yeah. And in fact, you know, they're not, number one. And number two, even on this specific issue, the idea that the right is some beacon of free speech is just patently insane. Now, they have done very effective political messaging to try to position themselves as like, oh, we're the free speech party. But they're not. They just are in favor of them being the ones who control what the speech actually is. You see this very clearly, like in the way that Elon is running Twitter is one example or my favorite thing, the Mike Lindell new social media platform that was like free speech platform, no profanity, no porn, no using the Lord's name in vain, etc. So I have come to see that it is really important to continue to call those things out, to continue to, you know, show the authoritarian tactics and the egregious legislation um, and those efforts that are going on in the right as well, because otherwise, you know, people are just coming into politics and trying to sort out their views may become confused. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm against authoritarianism. I see some semblance of authoritarianism on the left and I call it out where I see it, but I just think there's more naked authoritarianism on the right. At the same time that the right has better marketing and PR where they pretend like it's only the left that's authoritarian and we're actually the saviors. Yeah. And I think that's what triggers me the most is that I don't want to feed into this bogus narrative of like, it's only the left that's authoritarian and the right is somehow, you know, a bastion of freedom and like, so let's just beat up on the left all day. I just think it's misleading. And so I don't I don't want to partake in that in any way, shape or form. I think you actually can make the proper criticisms while keeping everything in context and perspective. But that requires knowing everything that's going on and then talking about all of those things and putting the proper em proper emphasis on it. And I just think that's a hard line and very few people walk it correctly. The whole debate about like what is wokeism for me has actually been uh, intellectually useful to understand what the right's definition of wokeism is to the extent that they even have one versus what my critique of wokeism, identity politics, cancel culture, et cetera, is. So anyway, spirited debate. Nice to dive into these issues with um, Norm. Enjoyed the conversation very much. All right, guys. Uh, so now go to Substack, sign up. Um, make, make, make it all worth it, baby. <laughs> Five bucks a month. <laughs> And uh, you get the videos and you get them a day early. Everybody else can uh, sign up on Substack for free. You get the free audio version of the podcast. Uh, all right, guys, we love you. We'll talk to you next week.